Podcast ain't played nobody. Uh, welcome to the off season. Except, Bill, it's not really the off season. I'm still sitting in a hotel. I spent last night talking to football coaches until really late in the morning, and the night before that, and the night before that. So it's just like every other Saturday night. The only difference is none of you listening got to watch football. Um, well, you got to watch football Monday night, but that's it, and that's it for a while. That's really the only difference. So welcome to the off season, but it's not really the off season yet. It's just that no one is playing a football game. And we still haven't played anybody. Correct. Probably never will. Piss yeah. poor scheduling. Um, I am at uh, the AFCA convention, <clears throat> which is for a bunch, like close to 10,000 football coaches from high school and college that descend upon a convention center uh, at this particular point of the season every year. And then uh, they like job hunt and schmooze and drink like frat bros and um, you know, hand out, well, not, no one hands a physical resume anymore, but you get my point. Um, and then there's a lot of gossip and chatter. And there's also like a big convention floor. Like if you can imagine going to like E3 or Comic-Con, but it's all designed for football coaches. So they have like these big giant, um, you know, displays and like, like, like little areas, I don't know what you would call them, like interactive stuff from like Under Armour and Nike and Russell Athletic. But then there's also like, <laughs> there's booths for like seven different kinds of field turf, which field turf is like a brand name. Um, there's like you know, helmet manufacturers, locker manufacturers, pretty much every single thing that you can think of on this convention floor. Like, do you want to have your team's logo molded into a 3d image on on your players knee pads because they can do that for a price so there's a lot of that and then the, the, the i mean that's not why i'm here i'm here basically to hang around and talk to people which i've been doing so i'm a little hoarse and i'm very hungover i um well i might be a little hoarse because i think i'm always a little hoarse it seems like my voice lasts about four minutes uh i am unfortunately not hungover uh, I've been sitting here continuing to write about the 2015 season because the big top two, top 100 games countdown uh, comes along soon. And I'm, I'm tasked with uh, the, the, the annual balance of trying not to just give all the 54 to 46 games to, you know, too high a spot on the list because it, it inevitably gets grumbles of, you know, well, I, I don't, you know, defense is good too. Blah, blah, blah. Um, so there's that. There's the fact that two of the best games of the year were Michigan State, Iowa, and Michigan State, Ohio State, and neither of those games was any fun for about 55 of the 60 minutes. I was. You just took my first question away from you. So last night I was having this conversation with colleagues from another outlet about the kind of similar list that they were making. Do you have a separate category for like great endings? Because I'm sure defensive coordinators would love to like point and beat their chests at the, at the, you know, everything up until the 22 play drive of the big 10 title. But I was there and it was not really like an engaging viewing experience. No, not at all. It was so yeah, I mean, it's, it's tricky. I mean, there's, there, there, there are the, like I wanted to put Washington Southern Miss uh, on the list. I think I've raved about this, that game in this podcast because it was just a, a, such a pleasant experience to watch but it didn't, it didn't end up being that close, and it certainly wasn't in, of any sort of, you know, national importance. And uh-huh. so it gets bumped down the list a little, I guess. And then you've got a really well-played, like, Clemson-Florida State that wasn't all that dramatic at the end, but was just well-played. 
Uh, and then you get the games that sucked except for one play. Like, you know, the, the either they sucked except for one play or we only remember one play, but it doesn't really matter because that one play was amazing. Like the Nebraska Northwestern Hail Mary last year, the Nebraska BYU Hail Mary this year. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, really tricky. And this is one of those overthinking exercises I get to go through every year where I think for a long time and then, uh, put out a list anyway. And then people complain because that's, that's what we do. I complain about these lists too. So um, the lesson is not to overthink. And I never learned that lesson. Um, and speaking of overthinking, just to, I mean, we kill narratives on the show. Sometimes we beat them to death. Um, I swear to God, this is the last thing I'll say about bowl season, but <laughs> I was actually one of the last conversations I had in a bar last night was with a, uh, a linebackers coach that had just uh, started a new job and his previous employer, he they had just come from a bowl game. And we were talking about how weird and different those bowl game prep schedules are with travel and everything else. And he specifically mentioned that for most teams, like you always hear about, you know, never give Nick Saban 30 days, you know, to plan <laughs> and the, the, this, the long like off season between the regular year and the bowls. Most of the coaches don't like that because they're so conditioned to trying to jam like basically three and a half days during like a normal week is all they get in terms of like, you know, go back to concept, look at, look at things that you want to do, install it, coach it and go. And they have a huge problem with overthinking things in bowls in these like segments where, okay, you guys break for the holidays or maybe there's finals and you're not around your guys or you go recruiting. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting because, you know, we've talked about the whole give a damn prospect. It's just funny that the coaches, it becomes like their third or fourth most important thing they're doing at the time. Also, they're looking for jobs, a lot of them, or, or getting fired or whatever. Um, usually not if you're on a bowl team, but sometimes it's, it's just so funny to, to, to have them admit that like they actually prefer the crazy tight week to prepare for an opponent because that's just what they're conditioned to do. Like that's how college football is built. Yeah. It's, I, I did like that the Georgia Penn State Bowl was so discombobulated that it kind of, you know, despite the fact that we always want to overreact to these bowls, nobody even pretended to overreact to Georgia winning with like a makeshift staff against Penn State's backup quarterback. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some like that, but yeah, so so frequently we we <laughs> we ignore all the details. We just remember the last thing we saw. Actually, this wasn't on our on our very rough itinerary, but um, Penn State. Maybe you want to save these thoughts for we're the having spring. A, I think uh, Bill and I are having a psychic mind mold because I was actually going to transition there as well. So I'm Man, here at this ASCA. is good. We've only done twenty. This is our twenty first episode, and we're already on that wave. We're sharing a mind. Um, uh, I'm going to use yours to better uh, to better balance my checkbook. Uh, I don't have a checkbook. That's all. That's all my wife. Don't even look at me about a checkbook. <laughs> the uh, so of all the teams and everything going on here, there have been some. There have been a handful of of notable hires that have happened. Um, some physically happened here in different hotel rooms at, at ASCA, but um, the combination of Bob Shoup being hired away to Tennessee as their new defensive coordinator and then Herb Hand uh, going to Auburn, that's, man, that's, that's the, the one and one A guys for, for James Franklin and Penn State. Penn State is the conversation to be had right now. It's, um, it's interesting that we've talked about, you know, we've, we've tried to, I've tried to kind of roughly rank like anxiety level programs these last couple of weeks. You know, Penn State went to a bowl. They look terrible doing it. They've had an offensive crisis for a while now, but losing those two guys is, uh, it really can't be understated how big that is. Also, conversely, a really, really nice hire for Auburn. 
Uh, I don't think most people realize Herb Hand's um, involvement in, in, in the crafting and the concept of what Gus became famous for. You know, Herb, Herb was sort of like, he was the Oats or the Garfunkel. I mean, he was the uncredited second songwriter. He was the, uh, you know, the Bill Finger to Bob Kane in a lot of ways for that offense. And now they're back together, and I think a, a rhythm can develop there if they're given time. I mean, they still have issues on defense. And, you know, Kevin Steele showed at LSU he can, he can do good things in a year, but he's not going to resurrect those guys. And plus, I think Auburn would be on their fourth D.C. in five years. Yeah. So a little calmer and a little more comfortable for Auburn. Which isn't saying much, considering they, you know, they watched their hated rival win another title this week. But Penn State becomes, uh, I mean, it's it's the program everyone's talking about right now, and that's pretty impressive when you consider what Michigan's doing in recruiting. Um, you know, what Michigan is doing in recruiting, it's just considered to be almost inevitable, and no one is shocked. We, we tend to make a big deal out of some of the some of the eccentric parts of what like Harbaugh is doing in terms of you know, sleeping at kids' houses or, you know, the, the interactions these kids are relaying to us in the media. But amongst coaches, they're, I mean, this is what they expected. They expected Michigan to become, you know, a very high-functioning, uh, dominant machine in recruiting, and then eventually that would translate out on the field. So the Penn State thing, however, is it's a swing. It becomes a very big job if it's open, if Franklin is fired. Um, if Franklin pulls it off, it's a reinstatement of his worth. It's, there's a lot of things building, right? It's, a, it's just going to be a super interesting year. Um, and all the angst and frustration that might go on for the fan base, you know, it's cold comfort, but at least it only has to do with football this time, right? <laughs> See, okay, so I'm going to play devil's advocate, not with that last part. I'm not touching that last part. But, um, so... It's, Penn State was in kind of a weird situation, especially this year. I mean, you've got James Franklin, who who clearly can coach a football team. I know that you know uh, the with especially with the way he, he you know he signed a top ten top fifteen class last year. He's kind of suddenly got the reputation of a guy who can recruit but can't coach. But that does not explain what he did at Vanderbilt. Um, you know, for th- you know he he won at least eight games twice in th- what th- a three year span at at Vanderbilt, and then before that. Uh, the the team that went five and seven uh, before that was actually like a top forty team too uh, in terms of the F plus rankings they were really really close it, it took them a year to build a top forty pro, pro, uh, product at Vanderbilt and that that means you're a good coach um, Herb Hand is universally regarded as a good offensive line coach and and Bob Shoup I, I I think Bob Shoup is awesome and he's clearly a very good defensive coordinator but. James Franklin is a good coach who had a pretty mediocre team this year. Herb Hand is a good offensive line coach who hasn't had a good offensive line in two to three years. Bob Shoup is a very good defensive coach whose uh, defense on paper um, underachieved compared to where I thought he was going to be this year. It seems like sometimes those things happen and it's almost a, a breakup becomes a healthy thing. You know, obviously, this requires him to, to, to go outside of his comfort zone a little bit. And, and bring in new blood. But new blood might not be the worst thing in the world right now, especially with the quarterback change. Uh, there's already going to be a lot of change going on. Obviously, a new offensive coordinator. This might not be a, t- a bad time for him to hit the reset button a little bit. That doesn't mean – I mean, if he doesn't make good hires, he, he's almost certainly done. But, you know, even – even the job he's done at Penn State, he inherited a program that was, I think, 58th in F-plus the year before with Bill O'Brien. Um, he – 
obviously there were massive, massive offensive line depth issues when he walked into the job in, in 2014. And I think they were barely a top 50 team that year. They were barely a top 50 team this year. At some point that has to change, but I don't, it, it was weird. As much as I like shoop in hand, I didn't really find myself being any less optimistic or more pessimistic, I guess, with them departing. I think this could be a good experience for him. It might not be. He could always get the hires wrong, but this might, this might be okay. I uh, had a drink with a Penn State staffer a couple nights ago, and you know the gist of it is what you would expect. They want to reinforce um, that numbers fact, which is fair. Which is fair. I mean, they there's a culture issue and a depth issue for them. So the culture issue partly is it's Penn State, so there's always going to be um, stuff. I'll leave it at that. How's that? Um, but aside from that stuff, Franklin's, uh, you know, Franklin's uh, uh, clean slate, you know, resurrection, Vanderbilt, whatever you want to call it, it, that worked because he was able to walk into a locker room that wasn't great, that wasn't super talented, but also had never really won ever. And they were 2-10 and 10 the year prior. So he was able to command that, that, that roster instantly. So like total buy-in, I, I hate that phrase buy-in, right? But it was it was everyone believed in what they were doing. There was no doubt. There were no, you know, conflicting camps like this Hackenberg situation of disliking your head coach that didn't happen in Nashville. So every opportunity that came of Vanderbilt's way when Franklin was there, it was very much sort of a a team effort to pull in that direction. And this is all per people at Penn state telling me this, you walk into a situation at Penn state, the one, the numbers are against you from day one. And they're only, they're actually only getting worse from the time you get there. Right. Because a lot of the, the delay effect on scholarship sanctions isn't really understood. People think that the day that the number, you know, the punishment comes down, the next year is what hurts you. It really isn't. It's usually like three years later. So that delayed whiplash effect gets the next guy almost always and never punishes who, who they want to punish. So you've got that. But then you also have a locker room that won under Bill O'Brien that, and in a lot of ways was, was being built to play for Bill O'Brien both in terms of scheme and culture, that didn't happen. So it's really just now where you're going to have this season, not only a full, a full, ro- full allotment, a full roster, but also uh, an uh, overwhelming majority of guys who are, you know, this staff's guys, Franklin's guys. So it's fair to keep that in mind. I just always, you know, I, I thought Shoop would move on because Shoop got, hot you know I mean a lot of things just worked in his favor and I thought he would be up for a couple different jobs Um, but to lose Shoop and Han within a week and also have still a fair amount of uncertainty around the program and a really really bad year offensively all of this is sort of cresting on these guys at once so how Franklin handles this in the next you know six months going into next season is really going to define his career yeah Um, yeah so uh, outside of Penn State, I'm trying to think if there's one program that had the same sort of dominant um, conversation. You know, there's not a lot to be said right now in the coaching community about Alabama. Um, it's just considered to be what it is. And, um, it, you know, people weren't really talking about it. Um, I got invited to a private viewing party of about 50 or 60 people, um, 40 of which were active college football coaches. Um on Monday night and to say 
that it was a pro Clemson room would be an understatement. <laughs> and and I, I think it's because of a lot of things, but I think it's mainly because of, I, I think the entire college football community, my rant aside from the show before last, I, I think everybody is itching for some change. I think that, you know, from the coach's perspective, Bill, it's kind of funny, you know, that tree has the, the, the tree of coaches, they may not have been as successful as we thought when they, when they go off to their own jobs, you know, but, uh, must champ still being sort of like a carry out thing, duly not working McElroy and TBD. I think other guys who are working in other trees want to see other, you know, a, a different way of doing things, uh, be proven correct or be proven right at the, at the highest level so that other coaching trees can flourish in the same way. I, that, that's, that's the super most politically correct way or, <laughs> or most like gentle way of explaining that part of it. It wasn't like a whole lot of people loved Clemson in the room, you know, but but they were cheering for him. It, it um, yeah, I sent Jason yesterday, Tuesday morning, a, a very rambly piece about people imitating Saban and getting the wrong message. It was kind of funny. I wanted to go, it was already rambling. So I cut it off. But one of the things when I was kind of looking at the successes and failures and whatever, um, it like Jimbo is obviously a success. He was the LSU offensive coordinator when Saban was there. I, you know, he, he's got his, his ship going just fine. Uh, not at a top five every year level, but a very solid level. And then um, uh, McIlwain, I'm, I'm still relatively confident in McIlwain. Obviously, he's going to have some. He, he's going to have to find a quarterback, and uh, until he does, that situation could be a li- at least a little weird. But uh, he did a really, really nice job at Colorado State. It looked like he was doing a nice job. Uh, before the Greer suspension, so I assume that they will kind of. I, I'm still giving him the benefit of the doubt, and that's kind of funny. Uh, like I don't give Muschamp the benefit of the doubt at all. He's got to earn it back. But when we start thinking about you know former Saban assistants, it, it's almost like um, the offensive guys take the right messages away from Saban uh, because you know any Saban influence isn't going to be on what kind of defense you run. It's going to be based more on organization. And the, the, the way you go about things behind the scenes, I think, I think Jimbo's one of the most organized guys, which is a funny thing to say. I mean, you know, obviously he's had a lot of FSU um, personnel, whatever, discipline issues and whatnot. But I, I think, you know, in terms of the operation on the field, I think he's a, a really organized guy. And maybe that, maybe that is a little bit of Saban rubbing off on him in the right way. Whereas, you know, Muschamp seemed to, the, the main message he seemed to carry from Alabama uh, or from well, he was at LSU, yeah. From from LSU through other times is Gur defense, and um, that didn't work out as well when he was a head coach. So we'll see. I, you know, there are so many with each of these jobs, everything is so unique, and and so I, I always feel a little bit queasy going down the road of making broad generalizations like the ones I made in you know the podcast last week and the piece yesterday, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I'm really curious to see now what Kirby smart does. Cause obviously you become, you know, the thing about Saban is that he, he is elite in so many different ways in terms of recruiting, in terms of organization, in, um, development, the developmental side of things, it, it, you know, smart's been with him a long time and Georgia can recruit at that level. That's what, I mean, you know, Florida State can and, and whatnot. There, there are a few other schools that can, but Georgia absolutely can recruit at that top 10 level or top five level even. Yeah. And, and if you do that and if he, you know, maybe 
maybe he, he got all the right lessons there too. Maybe, you know, he, he's the right guy to kind of break through and, and become a major, major factor off of the Saban tree and maybe even beat Nick Saban since former Saban assistants don't tend to do that. But um, yeah, I'm really, really curious about Kirby Smart now to see how he goes about uh, building that Georgia program. Yeah, and that and that would be probably the second most talked about program that wasn't playing in the national title is Tennessee and how it relates to Georgia and how it relates to South Carolina and Florida, because it is definitely a win now or else mode for for Tennessee, but the shoe pyre was was pretty much universally acclaimed. Um, everybody's looking there now. Yeah, and the it shoe is pyre- a hot program. And, I, and again, I really like Bob Shoup. I assume he'll be just fine there. But um, dumping the last guy was a little weird to me to begin with, uh, just from you know the number standpoint of them already having a top twenty defense. Um, it was not a uh, it was not an amicable amicable split. It was yeah. not uh, it was not well greeted by the departing party uh, uh, Chanzik, and um, a lot of people were surprised by it here. But uh, I think it was. Uh, you know, I think Butch went out there knowing that he could make uh, even even a minor improvement would be would be well greeted. And yeah. also, Shoop is very familiar with Tennessee, having been at Vanderbilt. And right. um, I think he wanted I think he wanted a little bit more not local flavor. He's not a Tennessean or anything, but but um, I, I think it it helps him in Nashville tremendously, which is a separate area than than East Tennessee and. Again, all of this, these are all just, just, it is an accumulation of talking points that build towards Tennessee has to be in the SEC title in December or else. <laughs> I mean, they are finally talented enough to do it without argument, and they have the window. It's just funny um, to me that their defense was 17th in defensive uh, S&P Plus last year. Their offense was 43rd, so he dumped his defensive coordinator. The psychology of that, well, I, I can give you the coach's reason why he did that. Um, he doesn't have his hands on the defense. He has his hands on the offense. Um, you know, the, the psychology of those guys is this is, a, this is a very unique window. This is a very, you know, look at what Missouri was able to do. You're not going to get this chance again. Um, we're, it's okay to fire a defensive coordinator based solely off of, like, two games. And, and really – I had that hypothesis and I was kind of just kicking it around with some people and and I I wasn't far off. I'll put it that way, that (laughs) the implosion late against Oklahoma, the, the, the just gutting destruction. uh, I mean, just, just the absolute moral collapse against Florida for the fan base and the program and recruiting everything else. That kind of sealed, sealed the deal, even though they played very good down the stretch. Yeah, the, the Florida game was the one. I mean, that was where, you know, they, they were breaking out the stats during the game of, you know, when Tennessee blitzes, Florida has no chance whatsoever. And then on like every third and fourth and long, Tennessee didn't blitz and Florida converted. Um, that was bad. I, that, there is no defense for that one. But, you know, like the Oklahoma game, that was, to me, that was so, 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 so much more on the offense than the defense. But as you, as you said, he can't fire himself. So Absolutely. Well, you see, yeah, and you see that a lot, you know. One might say the same thing about Auburn, actually. So, um, have you? Um, when you see, this is just. A, I'm curious because I've, I've talked to. There's probably four or five media here um, that I'm. I, I know most all of them were friends who we went out, and we were kind of kicking around like pop twenty fives and talking about as you push into the first part of the actual off season. You know who's who's the top five, who's the top ten, who's carrying the momentum, and all that. What are you? 
is there anything that you've seen so far in those like hasty too early top you know, 2016 deals that you've laughed at that you thought was ridiculous you thought that was just didn't you know wasn't warranted because of the numbers i'm just curious that everything i've seen so far i expected i don't know if i necessarily like um keep talking while i look one up because i have not even pretended to keep up with that so far <laughs> well good for you by the way and i would also i would also hesitate uh if i was a, just a, a, a all of you guys listening, I would probably throw that stuff out with the bathwater uh, because most of those things are made on the fly. Again, we haven't had, we haven't seen signing day yet, which becomes more and more impactful on the, on the following year because more and more talented five-star freshmen play. Um, you know, Ohio state, uh, it's very trendy right now to dethrone Ohio state. That seems a little silly um, in favor of a Michigan team that they stomped going to be different personnel it's going to be a different dynamic the game's going to be actually but the game's going to be back in columbus so um I, I i feel like it's a little that's probably a little premature um washington is is in a lot of people's top 15 uh we talked about washington and how interesting we think they are going into next season but that feels a little premature um so um i pulled up schleybaz okay you, you talk long enough for me to pull one up and then kill all the autoplay ads um, <laughs> so, uh, so here's Schleybaugh and, and this was, I mean, he's pretty good at, uh, you know, a finger on the pulse, look at things. So I, it's, it's his, but you know, others are probably going to be relatively similar. He has Clemson one, Alabama two. And that's, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I, I think I've made it pretty clear. I, I always pick Alabama one and I'm almost always right to do so. Um, ah, I say that, but then I think I picked Ohio State this year, didn't I? I, I, I allowed myself to be peer pressured. Um, he has Baylor three, which is kind of interesting. I mean, they That's a little strong. Lo- losing Corey Coleman, losing Oakman um, and Drango and uh, the other ty- uh, Billings. That's that. That's tricky. Um, you know that that might be third seems a little bit high. That that makes me a little bit nervous. Michigan at four, a little bandwagony, but I mean they really were even with the late fade. They were what sixth in F plus. They returned quite a bit, so I, I can't really say I have a problem with that one. Uh, OU fifth, that that kind of makes sense to me. Uh, they they you know pretty good experience on both sides, although obviously losing Shepard could be pretty bad. Uh, he has Florida State six. That one makes sense to me too, especially with that offense. They've really Jimbo's been kind of interesting so far because um, you know the the 2014 offense and the 2015 defense that would have been like a top two or three team, uh, but the, they lost a ton from the uh, what 2013 defense, um, and then they lost Jameis this year, and they were pretty, relatively inefficient on offense while the defense improved drastically, and now the offense will improve again. But that seems pretty solid to me. LSU seventh, I think that's going to make some people nervous, but they ended up ninth in F plus. So that's not, I mean, and they really don't, other than linebackers, they really don't lose very much. So they could be uh, really, really interesting, especially if Dave Aranda can, can push the right buttons. I love that hire. Stanford eighth is pretty good. Um, they do lose some pieces. I mean, Hogan it was probably underrated. We probably shouldn't just assume that the next guy will be that good. Uh, a couple linemen are gone too. So, you know, maybe the offense, maybe Matt McCaffrey doesn't get quite as many good, good looks in the open field, but they're going to be really good. Notre Dame ninth. I, I, this makes me feel very weird to say, but that almost feels too low. I guess they lose Fuller and Prosize. Um, and, and of course, Jalen Smith. So maybe, but I, I kind of expected Notre Dame to be a little higher. They passed so many tests and ended up eighth in F plus. That's really impressive to me. Houston 10th. I, 
I'm going to pass on that one right now because, I mean, I think we've talked about Houston a lot. They were very, very, very mediocre and lucky in, in big portions of October and November. Mm-hmm. But if you eliminate that, uh, you know, they're good in September. They were obviously, you know, good against Temple and Florida State. So, you know, maybe 10th is – they're not going to be the 10th best team in the country, but maybe they can be that successful again, even though they lose a lot of defensive guys. Tennessee 11th is almost conservative to me. I kind of expected them to maybe pop into the, the top 10. Ohio State being 12th again, it, really good quarterback, really good recruiting. I'm assuming they're top 10, but we'll see. Ole Miss is 13th, and I, I got to say I'm fascinated by Ole Miss this next year. I'm always fascinated with Ole Miss. They always give you a reason to be pretty interested. But the, I, I, I've come so quickly around on them for next year. I don't know about 13th. That makes me a little nervous, but – um, Chad Kelly says he's coming back. Mm-hmm. They they lived part of the year without um, was it Hilton? Yeah, Hilton, Hilton was the one that got hurt early, right? Or was it Connor? Elston? Connor. 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 That's right. He lost back. Connor early, but then they you know they had to play without Kim Dietschy uh, in the bowl game. They had to play without all of these guys here and there. Um, assuming that Adaboyjo and Stringfellow both return. That's still going to be one hell of a receiving uh, passing game, and I, you know, with a new class coming in with Shea Patterson, uh, you know, being the the heir apparent and whatnot, I, I don't, I don't, they could, they they're going to fall. They're not going to be at like a top five, six level again. But they really, I was assuming they would be like three and nine until like a month ago, and now I could actually see them being a top twenty five team next year. This was supposed to be the regression year, but I, I think they're they're they are. The description I heard from one Big Twelve coach was that they are—they look like a uh, a Baylor of the SEC in terms of you you keep waiting for this new guy who's upset the you know the the power structure to to fall back, but he hasn't done that in terms of recruiting. So they've been more and more consistent with recruiting. The old Miss guys I've talked to for the last two years have said, "Hey, we had a really successful class, Kandichi and and." Um, you know, Treadwell and, and uh, Laramie Tunsil. By the way, just as an aside, I've, I've talked to three NFL scouts who are here. Not that this is an NFL podcast, but apparently it's, it is a giant, like, given in the, in the community that Laramie Tunsil is the number one pick to the Titans. Just without, like, no one's worried. About, it's apparently just already done, which I, that's not a world I jump into often, but I, was, I thought it was worth relaying. Um, but you know that was a major class role miss. But however, it wasn't really that deep. It was it had a lot of superstars up front. Um, that they've been really impressed with the, the subsequent classes being deep and them exercising the full twenty two and getting great value at, with all twenty two signees. They're and they, I mean they're going to sign a top five class that's right. as deep as it is uh, star heavy. Again, so yeah, I mean it, I feel. And, and and again, having all you know, having having more experience with this program than any other in the nation, um, it's it's pretty weird for me to talk about them as a consistent <laughs> top fifteen team. But I definitely, we're now going from culture change to sort of full on identity change. I think. Well, and it's funny too that um, you know that that twenty thirteen class that we have um, spoken so much about that was only like seventh per two four seven, I think. And mm-hmm. this year they'll probably top that. So. Um, 
maybe you know maybe it's a combination of those things that's making me a little more optimistic for them. But well, that and the fact that they were brilliant over the last you know whatever four or six weeks of the season, they lost to Memphis. Uh, they took their beating. They got a little healthier, and then they went out and just looked awesome the rest of the way, except for except for that overtime period against Arkansas. Let Which, me, by the way, right, right now that might end up being the number one game on my top 100 list. That game was amazing. It's a pretty big swing. Um, let me ask you, uh, without going through uh, Mr. Slayball's entire 25, uh, and we're not taking, we're not <laughs> yeah, taking I didn't on him. To we, keep going that long, but I kept yeah, we just something. this is just the first one you find. Um, teams I'm curious about uh, as we, and this is just a random question we haven't prepped for, but uh, we talked. We've already talked a little bit about Washington getting some buzz. Um, where is North Carolina? Because it's an eleven and three team. They go to the division title, or they go to the conference title. Um, they seem to have put all the crap behind them that Fedora didn't know that he was getting into. They seem to have found a rhythm and some consistency in the way they built the program and how they're recruiting. It feels like they could take, I don't want to say a step because that's a cliche, but they could have a very similar. Let me say, I feel like they're going to have a very similar season. Um, in 2016, minus losing to a bad team like South Carolina? So my problems with North Carolina, losing Williams at quarterback yes. is obviously costly. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe the backup is great, but I really like Marquise Williams. And that defense, it got exposed, obviously, against Baylor. But, you know, and, and 70th in defensive S&P Plus is absolutely an improvement over the previous year. Um, I think they were, they might have been triple digits the year before, but you know they only improved to seventieth in those numbers, and now they lose uh, Rashad and Sam Smiley, um, and what was the other linebacker, Shetmer or whatever. I, that that concerns me, especially considering from a stat standpoint, and of course you know from the stats, stats aren't always right, but they were only uh, they were only twenty ninth in uh, S and P plus. They were seventieth on defense, and that's why they were so low overall. And so I don't with, with losing Williams and like half your defense, that doesn't make me think you're going to be better next year. Maybe a lot will depend on that quarterback position, but um, I, yeah, I, I struggle there. And I, actually, if we had kept going on Schleyball's list, the interesting teams popped up right next. You had four, Michigan state 14, USC 15, Iowa 16, North Carolina 17. You know, my thoughts about Iowa as well. I dead horse with that, but um, of those teams they, that you just named, which is the one that we're laughing at for that placement next year? Iowa. <laughs> I hate saying that. I really, really he do. said it like I it was just, a funeral. Wow. Okay. No, I, I agree I, with no, you. I, just, I totally I, agree with you. They just, I mean, they lose Kanzari. The, the run blocking was better this year, but it still wasn't amazing. And they weren't, they just weren't very efficient on offense. And now they lose their top guy. The passing game was pretty good and it should be pretty good again. And they really don't necessarily lose that much on defense. My my perspective just comes from the fact that they weren't a top twenty team to begin with, and so it's it's hard for me to imagine them improving next year to play at a top twenty level. But um, you know, I guess getting Desmond King back, the pass offense and pass defense should be solid, and maybe that's enough to improve. But I just, I, they were never as good as twelve and zero said they were this year, and and so I don't really. God, I hate saying that. I, I keep I hate hammering on the same teams, but the nails are right there. Uh, Michigan State, I will say, I'm not real confident in them being 14th next year either. Which is this is another dead horse because I I obviously didn't really love Michigan State, but that offense was so dependent on Connor Cook finding receivers on third and long because the running game stunk, and the running game got better late in the year. And now they lose Conklin, they lose Jack Allen. 
um, uh, and most of their defensive line. That I, I'm maybe it's a, maybe it's a situation again where they they stink in September and then they get really good in November. But I think they'll probably not be very good in September. The reason why I brought up North Carolina, just to back up for a second, and also I don't really have anything to add to Iowa, um, other than like probably the same feeling you have that you feel cruel smacking them down like that, but it's just, you know, it is pretty apparent. Uh, North Carolina opens with Georgia. Yeah. And that's right now, um, it's interesting to see ESPN uh, take some of the marketing that the digital guys like us have done for years. Like the second the game was over Monday, their social and a lot of their .com and stuff immediately started previewing week one. Yeah. And that was a game that didn't get a lot of play. Like everyone's talking about, oh gosh, like Lambo, LSU, Wisconsin, or uh, you know, Ole Miss and Florida State and Orlando, and of course USC and Alabama and Arlington. But you still, the Chick Fil A kickoff is going to be Georgia and North Carolina. Um, we don't know a lot about Georgia. Yeah, this is not the game that I, you know, I was looking at the 16 schedule for something. I think probably for the show a month ago, and didn't think much of that game. Probably more than a month ago because it was before the ACC title game, which I was I was pretty impressed by North Carolina in that. Um, it suddenly becomes really interesting. That's a game where everything that we've just got done talking about with Georgia and the questions that we have, it's very very possible that I know that North Carolina is replacing a quarterback, but if they come in and win that game, boom, you you start a whole new identity problem for Georgia. Under I mean, right. it's, oh, a, yeah. it's a it's not what Smart would want to open against, and it's not you know Georgia does like a one out of every three or four year, uh, you know, big neutral site game. This is really not the year for that. They they <laughs> needed a ULM to come in, you know, at home in the hedges and have them tweak up before they start with like a you know a minor conference opponent. But they don't get that. In fact, I think now that uh, let me stall as I type, they've got a really really tough opening month. So we're gonna know really we're I mean, we're gonna know really quick about if there's gonna be regret what. My thing with Georgia is no one expects Kirby to come in and, then, and you know, this to be a, a four and eight football team, right? But what regression is tolerable is my question. So they start <laughs> off with North Carolina and then they end the month. It's not as bad as I thought. They're at Missouri. That's the open conference play in the third week. They have Nichols State at home. But then they're at Ole Miss and home against Tennessee. Yeah. So if you lose to North Carolina, those two games sort of become must win. And I don't know if that happens. It's going to be very interesting. Yeah. I think that the fact that Tennessee is going to have pretty high expectations might help smart a little bit next year. Like people are, you know, I, I'm sure Georgia fans will talk themselves into, you know, Tennessee's nothing and we should win the East because I'm, they, they'll always talk themselves into that. Uh-huh. But I would say a good portion of fans might, you know, be willing out of the gates to settle for something a little less than the East title. And, and we'll see. We'll see. I mean, that is a tricky, you know, and even, you know, at Ole Miss, but between that, you've got at Missouri and at South Carolina, both with new coaches that, you know, one of them might pop up and be, you know, weird and and interesting. So, um, and then, you know, Georgia always having the the strange slate, they'll be done with SEC play on November 12th, and then they'll do the Cajuns and the the Yellow Jackets. But no, it's, that's going to be one of the stories. And, and yeah, North Carolina, Georgia really could be one of those, um, I don't know if statement game is quite right, but the just, you know, something weird could, you know, one of those teams could make a pretty bold statement that 
either ends up being true the rest of the way or turns into like a, a Texas A&M versus South Carolina mirage. But the, the winner of that game could at least dominate some narratives early on. Um, by the way, the ACC conference title, or the, the ACC conference schedule is still not out yet. That, that's not yeah. okay. Not okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, they, this is, here's my, you know, one, one of the giant headaches I've got uh, early when I'm doing previews. Um, like, I've always finished the MAC before the MAC schedule is released. And I've always, like, half the teams in the, those first couple of conferences had, won't really update their roster until, like, April. And so uh. I'm basically like, well, this guy's probably gone. Or this guy's probably returning, and it's it's just like a nightmare of, of blurriness. But to see how far um, North Carolina would push off of a, you know, how 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 far could a Georgia win take them? I can't tell you because everything after week four is still TVA. Um, but yeah. they open with Georgia. They're at Illinois, obviously a winnable game, and then uh, they're home for James Madison. So we can assume that they could be beat Georgia, and then you're three and zero. They have a scrub game against Citadel late in the year. Um, but I have no idea what they're looking at in terms of early ACC play. Um, we've talked about it before. I don't think that you're going to see an immediate impact from the coaching, uh, the, the coaching upgrade in the ACC. If you do, I think it's probably at Miami um, because yes. that has the most top-end talent. And it's going to take um, – I had two people tell me two nights ago – uh, we were talking about good hires, and and our theory on the show of Fuente being a great fit was um, was echoed by a lot of coaches I talked to. But then they would all th- their their response to me was always, "Well, it's going to take him a little bit," which is something we haven't really talked about because um, you know young coaches will tell you that as as older coaches get really old and sort of approach retirement, the one thing that slips is recruiting, and they haven't been consistent at Virginia Tech, so. Um, not to speak ill of Bronco, Bronco Mendenhall, though, they do feel like Fuente and that new staff is going to get out there and sort of kind of reclaim Virginia the way they did in the early aughts um, because they don't think that Mendenhall's guys are necessarily going to come out and, and have the local identity that, that Tech does. So uh, good for yeah, them. So Maybe really, a slog. I'm really interested in Mind- what Mendenhall does because he's <laughs> number one, he's so used to recruiting kind of with a, a hand tied behind his back. Uh, and he's and he's been decent. He's produced decent classes at BYU, considering the independence thing, considering the Mormon thing, et cetera. I, th- I felt he always did a reasonably decent job of recruiting, but it was so weird, uh, you know, and having to re- sign guys knowing they won't report to campus for two years and all the, all the little oddities that go on with uh, being BYU's head coach. I don't know, like, you know, maybe he's a lot better and more organized when he ha- when he's not at, a, at at that kind of situation, but. Um, I felt kind of bad for him, too, because he was always the last one mentioned. Like, look at this roster of new coaches the ACC brought in. Fuente, da-da-da-da-da-da, and uh, Mendenhall. It's a strange uh, hire. It, a lot of people have said they don't, yeah. they don't see it. Not to knock Bronco, but they just don't see it. I, and I, I think I really, what they I talk don't... about, Bill, is that they don't see the recruiting. Because what guys – I mean, who do you point to that, that Bronco – what kind of resume does he have as a recruiter? Well, I mean, he, he always managed to – again, with – the weird talent pool that he had to deal with. He always seemed to have a few four-star kids around. Um, but again, it's, it's so it's apples and oranges there. It's hard to say what he'll do recruiting yeah. at, at a reasonably unsuccessful ACC school compared to recruiting in Utah. It's just such um, an extreme, maybe the most extreme 
different in comparing anything, almost anything, when it comes to programs. Maybe X's and O's is, is you know, they're, they're pretty much the same as any other football team. But when you when you talk about BYU and you're not talking about like the football parts, it doesn't really translate to comparison. Yeah, especially yeah, for Virginia. I, I, it might be a spectacular hire. It's just it's I, I don't. They're one of the teams I, I look forward to previewing because I, I can't really grasp what they have that he can use and all these other things. So the, uh, one coach asked me, he said, "Can he's like he's like take a second. Can you see?" Like, can you forecast a world in which, like, a Bronco Mendenhall is, like, landing some five-star, four-star defensive tackle in a living room in Washington, D.C.? It's not that it couldn't happen, but that we've never seen that Bronco Mendenhall. Yeah, and, and the area maybe, but, I mean, I he's not going to be pulling, like, top 90 classes. He's going to get some talent. I just, the, I, I don't, I just, yeah, I don't know what to think about Bronco Mendenhall. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, that's fair. All right, we have uh, we have some questions. Yeah, I, I marked some emails. One of them I mentioned last week, but I thought we could get into a little more detail here. Um, but I have three the emails we've gotten. We really are going to try to to um, do a good job of of you know responding to these and talking about them here. Um, so anyway, this is the the Army Navy question that I I teased last week, and and we can kind of walk through it a little bit now. Okay. Um, and this is by a guy named Andrew. Um, let's see. Appreciate the coverage of Service Academy Ball on PAPN. Uh, here's your off-season deep dive question. 2009 Army grad here, smack in the middle of the generation of Army grads knowing only football failure. Personally witnessed the disaster of Bobby Ross and Stan Brock. The why are we in FBS question comes up a lot at West Point. My understanding is that the Ivy League offered spots to Army and Navy when they left Division One in the 80s and the academies declined. Uh, my general take is that both Army and Navy seasons point to FCS at the at the as the end state. Uh, we're seeing the absolute ceiling for a service academy with with Navy this year, right? Um, with the best quarterback they've had since Stavok leaving, they're not likely to repeat this feat in conference play. Army made the terrible decision to move to Conference USA after its 96-10-2 season. What followed was an inability to keep parity with teams that saw them every year. If third place in a G5 conference with the best team of a generation is the ceiling and one winning season in 13 is the basement with Army, what's the point? I doubt Navy will ever win out in the AC and Army won't ever go undefeated with an independent schedule that would rate a playoff berth, even if either team went to an NY6 bowl. Um, with weeks to study the option, they get crushed by a P5 opponent. <clears throat> I'm putting an asterisk on that one. Mm -hmm. um, I love my school in football and would like to see them competitive at the FBS level. That said, I see the gap getting worse between Army-Navy and the other teams. What's the long game for Army-Navy uh, in FBS when arguably they fit geographically, academically, and prestige-wise with the Ivy League? Uh, go Army, be Navy. So I do think the, you know, the, more, the studying the option makes you beat the option thing is overdone. Mm-hmm. Um, there like, is the. Uh, does he not remember oh, Ohio State opening with Navy two years ago? Right. I mean, I think you know. I love the point Neil Montalolo made when, when I talked talk to him for that uh, game plan piece this summer, and just that they study us, and we get a chance to study them. Yeah. And and if you get if you play Georgia Tech like Pitt did, congratulations. That means we know how you want to defend us. Uh, we usually don't. So. Um, you know, I think as long as Nia Montalolo there, as long as Ivan Jasper's there, he won't be forever. He will get a head coaching job at some point, I'm assuming. Um, but as long as that team is there, obviously they're going to they're gonna take a step backwards next season. Um, but they really have been able to, with different quarterbacks and different uh, you know, sets of defensive players, they've been able to put together top 40, top 50 performances 
um, a few times now over the last decade. Yeah. So is, I mean, isn't that enough? Like there, there's something to be said for all of mid majors. Like what's the point if you can't get in the playoff? I was on, um, what was it? Toledo radio Monday afternoon before the game. Of course. And um, the guy was really hammering home the idea of an 18 playoff. And I, I pretty much said, you know, give me, like, as long as one of those spots goes to the best mid-major team, fine. Because at that point, at that point, technically everybody in FBS has a path to the FBS title. Correct. And, I, and that's great. But, I mean, what the most depressing part about these last couple of years is, is pretty much witnessing, you know, through the rankings that, uh, that, the, that the playoff committee releases – like, I don't even know what it would take right now for a mid-major, even like a, a mid-major as, as indisputably awesome as Boise State was a few years ago. I, you know, how do they get into the top four? So I'm, I, mean, I don't really care. Like this year, you know, an 18 playoff would have included like Iowa. Um, and, you know, that they, that they were not national title caliber. God, I'm, I hammered Iowa again. I got to stop this. But um, So mean. I know I'm, I'm a hater, but I do like, I don't really care if more, if more power conference teams uh, get in the, the fifth place team will always have a pretty good gripe, maybe the sixth place, but two more power conferences after that, that doesn't impress me at all. But if you want to include them in major and give them a path, because obviously they had more to play for, but mid, those, those group of five teams that made the, the big power bowls are now two and oh, um, and, uh, you know, they can pl- the, the best mid-major team is always going to be a pretty damn good team. And I, I think just the fact that it would give everybody a path to the title would make, it would, would make a lot. I'd be in on the eight-team or that. Um, not that that's happening right now. All right. What about I, – I don't agree with the floor. In the, it, it's tough to compare Navy and Army these last couple of years because you – Right. I mean, I, I, did, uh, I did the Houston game after Thanksgiving. Um, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that Navy could win that conference. Well, they were the best team. Like on paper, they were the best team. They just, they, they didn't, they, they faced Houston about two weeks too late. If they face Houston in early November, they're the AAC champ. Yeah. I don't think that, no, I know. So I, I disagree. I think Navy could, um, maybe some of the circumstances, you know, things would have to fall right as they say, but no, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. Um, I've been impressed with, with some of the um, compensation that Navy's been able to pull off, both in scheme and depth and player, ma- you know, managing a roster with all the things that they have to put up with. Army has been different for a couple different reasons. I mean, it's they haven't had the consistency of the coaching staff. That's the biggest thing. And they still really haven't had that consistency. The, the roster shot, man. They, I mean, when they came in, Munkin and those guys inherited nothing. They inherited work a bad FCS roster, a bad one. And that's why they, they – didn't they lose to Fordham this first year? Or was that this year? Yale. They lost to Yale last year. Right. Like that's the, that's the level at which Army was at. And, and I, have, uh, I have two friends that are West Point fans, and, and I understand their frustration, but it's, it's mismanagement. It's, it, it's not fate, and it's not, it's not circumstance. And I think – look, I'll say this, uh, just having – Knowing a lot of people around Georgia Southern, Munkin is very committed to staying it, sticking it out, and and building it over time. That you know, you you don't change the fortunes of a service academy with an all star recruiting class. Unfortunately, right. you know, um, you you can have like a a good class and a half and some decent coaching and and see 
one, two, three, maybe even four wins change in a single year. It's we we, we see it happen sometimes, but you don't you don't get to play the game that way at Army. So it is going to take time. They have been close in playing. I, I mean, I don't I, I don't want to assume this guy's mentality, but you know, Army hangs on this past year and beats Navy. I think he's probably a little bit more optimistic about the long run. Um, I would be, uh, you know, right now it doesn't make sense for 2016 Army, but I know I know the AAC would take Army. I know the AAC, if Army becomes competitive in the next two to three years, there are schools that we think are, may, may make a move depending on Big 12 expansion and a couple of other things. I think the AAC would absolutely welcome Army. Yeah, I don't think, you know, specifically moving to Conference USA was the mistake. Yeah. Um, they just, <laughs> they didn't have their... They're, they're act together well enough to pull it off. But, I mean, I'm looking at their um, the year-to-year S&P numbers here. Um, in, in 05, they ranked 46th in defense, and 05 was already a while ago. But under Stan Brock and Rich Ellison, they were between 70 and 80, 70th and 80th for four straight years on defense. And that was 07 to 10. I mean, college football has changed since then, but not really, not, not you know, that much. And then um, in, you know, when, when Rich Ellerson took over, the defense started to fade, but he had a couple of decent offenses too. So, I mean, it's there. Like, they, they mistimed it all. They, they didn't have enough uh, you know, personnel to be good on both sides of the ball at once. But, like, you can, you know, the, the best Army team, if you combine the best offense and best defense of the last five years, is like a top 60 or 70 team. Well, not 60, top 70 or 80 team. So that's, I, I, again, there are, there are things about long-term goals here about whether that's enough to really justify being an FBS or do you want to go down and win conference titles and, you know, play smart, you know, play Princeton and whatnot. And, and maybe there's a, a pretty significant draw to that, but, um, but being a top 70 team is pretty awesome. And I think it's at least doable for army, uh, even if it hasn't been for the most part recently. Um, I'm, I may butcher this and forgive me. And if you're an army fan listening, feel free to correct me. But I heard this sort of weird stat that when the United States is in an active military engagement, like any, basically anything that we would consider to be a wartime theater, that Army football suffers. This is post-World like World War II. We're talking about modern era. So like the Desert Storm, the Second War in Iraq. Um, and that's because of, I guess there is some sort of nominal recruiting advantage in that you would see the certainty of seeing, of seeing uh, engagement and conflict um, is higher if you were to play at Army than you were at Navy or Air Force, I'm told. So maybe that has something to do with it. But as I go through and look, it's such a, you know, again, it's a lot like talking about BYU and recruiting. Army and Navy, the service academies, you, you don't look at budget. You don't look at um, marketing footprint, hiring an athletic director, all the kind of stuff that you would use to build back a bad college football program anywhere else. Um what Paul Johnson and now Neo and those other guys have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt is you can take what you're allowed to have at the service academies and win with this offense. Munkin is as good a mind in this offense as Johnson or Ken or any of those guys. He is, no doubt. It, just, it, it is just a slow march of time. Now, I, I, see, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of stuck on the conference thing where he thinks going to Cusa was such a bad move. If anything, I think... I've, I've heard that a lot, actually. I've heard that from a lot of people, but... I think building a little consistency wouldn't be the worst thing in the world yeah. in, in terms of scheduling. But, that, I mean, that's just right now. You, right now, if you're Army, just find wins. I mean, schedule, schedule the bare minimum. I don't even know what they have next year, but, I mean, 
don't overextend yourself. Yeah. I mean, people, it's kind of weird. You don't have to worry about paydays at Army. You don't have to go and try and figure out to, to sign the big fat two-in-one or one-in-one or something that's high profile. I know a lot of athletic directors have said, yeah, we're not really crazy about playing the triple option, but hey, maybe there's some, maybe there's some sort of unique aspect that we can market playing Army. You know, I'm sure like every AD tells you, well, of course, our, our fan base would love to welcome a service academy. You know, some of that's BS, obviously, but I, I don't think they would have a problem scheduling if they needed to. Here's their schedule next year. So yeah, let's I run just through this real up. fast. Temple, <laughs> Temple, at Temple, that's a loss. Rice, push, uh, probably a loss. At UTEP, winnable. At Buffalo, winnable. Uh, by at Duke, loss. Uh, Lafayette, winnable. North Texas, maybe. Yeah, I, I hope Lafayette's winnable. <laughs> uh, North Texas, maybe winnable. Um, yeah, North Texas was awful, so maybe. What's that? You know, North Texas was dreadful this year, so quite possibly. Yeah, I like Seth Luttrell a lot. I actually met him a couple days ago, but, you know. First year. Yeah, exactly. They, they're building out of their own basement. Uh, at Wake, you would assume is a loss. Uh, Air Force loss, Notre Dame loss, Morgan State win, and then they close against Navy, and that's a toss-up. So how many possible wins did I just rattle off? Five? Four? So, yeah, I mean, Rice has went, like, yeah, let's see, one, two, three. Yeah, I mean, a, an okay, like a top 110 Army team could, could go four and eight or five and seven. If Army goes four and eight or five and seven in 2016, that's a that's a resounding success. That's a huge reinforcement of what Munkin has set out to do. So I disagree with him. I think I think they're headed in the right direction. It's just I know it's really damn slow and I know it sucks and you and you're definitely at the bottom right now. But I think one of the reasons you're at the bottom, and this does translate to every other corner of college football, you're at the bottom right now not because you're two and ten. You're at the bottom right now because you haven't beaten uh, Navy in like an adolescent's lifespan. That's the problem. <laughs> okay. That is the problem. So beat Navy, even things out, calm down a little bit. Everything's going to be okay. The last part of the question, I don't know if, I, I don't really know how to answer. How, how does a service academy become a playoff contender? Um, other than what you've already said. It, do I think we'll see that in our lifetimes? No, I do not. But does that mean that you should drop to the Ivies? No, I don't think so. Your army, your Navy, you guys are different and special. Yeah. You know, in a good have, way, in a good way. Yeah, you get on national television every mid-December and everybody loves, everybody says very nice things about you. So, uh, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, if, if Army's thinking about dropping, then there's this whole other conversation about Louisiana Monroe and some of the other schools that have, that have budget limitations that will never, that it will always be very handicapped at the FBS level. There's a big conversation there, but. I guess that's another time. Speaking of another conversation for another time, I'm going to read this email, but I, I am a nerd and I want to prepare in advance. So okay. guy named Mike, Louisville fan, uh, I, I, an idea for a future podcast, maybe you combo it with the bizarro Southern Miss moving up idea that I think we discussed a while, uh, last week or the week before. What happens in 1990 if the old Metro Conference formed its proposed football league? Oh, yeah. I saw this email. I was excited about this. Yeah, this one, I, I actually, I think a long time ago, I wrote a little bit about it, like during realignment at like Rock M Nation, when everybody's freaked out about uh, all the realignment possibilities, I started looking into old ones. There's um, the Metro Conference, and he sent me a link that I'm pretty sure I, I didn't even click on it because I assume I know what it, yeah, this is the one I've uh, read before, loved it. Like back when independents were bailing, back when, you know, South Carolina ended up, in, or Penn State ended up in the Big Ten, and then eventually South Carolina ended up in the, um, in the uh, uh, SEC, there was an idea for a 
they're, they're, the Metro Conference was a basketball conference. They were trying to uh, maybe push it into a super conference for uh, football that basically included every independent from every reasonably uh, big city, uh, you know, east of like uh, Kansas, basically. So you had Boston College, Cincinnati, Pitt, Rutgers, Syracuse, Temple, Virginia Tech, West Virginia, East Carolina, Florida State, Louisville, Memphis, Miami, South Carolina, Southern Miss, Tulane. Um, I mean, I, this, you know, touches every nerve in the, uh, in the nerd in me. So I want to, you know, there's that idea. And then there's the old airline conference idea from like 1958, where Notre Dame, Penn State, Syracuse, the service academies, USC, UCLA, and like Cal and Stanford almost joined a conference. Um, there are huge what ifs there that I want to talk about, but I don't want to, I don't want to plug sounds, them yeah, in. This sounds like a whole other, this yeah, sounds I don't like a separate this. podcast. It's almost as important as our Eastern Michigan edition. That's right. Nothing's that important, but close. Hey, uh, by so the anyway, way, yes. listeners, by, le- by the way, I've been down here, been making connections. We're doing that Eastern Michigan show, okay? Oh, yeah, there's so no... stay woke. There's no, <laughs> there's no turning back now. Um, trying to think, the, the, you know, the, I think in the order I'm going to end up going, Eastern Michigan's going to come up on my preview list in, like, April, early April, maybe. Um, it's coming. It's coming. I've talked to people up there. I, I ain't even kidding. <laughs> Y'all thought I was so. Are we are we going to Ypsilanti? Is that the plan here? <laughs> I don't know about the budget on that one. We'll see. We might be going there through the magic of Skype. Um, well, Bill, guess what? I have uh, a, a really unique way to end the show. It's a first for us. I have to go to an airport right now. Go for it. Yeah. So we'll be back next week. Please send us your questions and uh, be smart. Be good. Uh, thanks for listening. Absolutely. <laughs>